So Oakland is actually one of my favorite cities, um, and so it's definitely a pleasure to work with the Prevention Institute who's based there. Um, but it's my pleasure to actually introduce uh, Howard Penderhughes um, from the Prevention Institute who will be speaking next. Uh, Mr. Penderhughes um, is a professor and chair at the University of California, San Francisco in Social and Behavior Science. Um, he is an author and a PhD who has conducted research and program development in the areas of race relations among youth and adolescent violence and violence prevention and intervention. Dr. Penderhughes is currently developing a conceptual framework to address the production of racial, class, and gender health inequality. His book, Race in the Hood, Conflict and Violence Among Urban Youth, presents a study of racial attitudes among youth and racial violence in New York City. Can we give Mr. Penderhughes a round of applause as he comes up? back in Milwaukee. <laughs> <A little> chilly, <laughs> but it's drier than where I'm at. I'm proud to say because we have not had a lot of rain lately and we got it now, so this is good. Um, I'm going to be, I've been tasked with, uh, you want me to talk right in there, right? Um, I've been tasked to uh, do a couple of things. Um, one is to uh, try to outline the public health approach to preventing violence. <clears throat> now some of you all obviously already know some of this, so forgive me if I'm going over some of that, but we want everybody to be on the same page moving forward. And then the second is to um, provide you with a foundation for uh, understanding the, uh, the framework of community trauma, which is, gonna, which is the foundation for the planning process and the plan that we're, we're, we're developing here in Milwaukee. And so that that's an important piece as well. As a part of that conversation, part of what I'm going to be doing is framing the conversation for today with an eye toward looking at what are the role of the business sector the, and the philanthropy in this broader initiative. Uh, and it's a crucial piece because part of what we have found, <coughs> we being the Prevention Institute, We've been working <coughs> with cities around the country on comprehensive violence prevention plans and implementation. And <coughs> we've identified some of the things that are effective and, 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 and that are useful in that process. And we're bringing that to this process here in Milwaukee, and so I'm going to be identifying some of that. But what I want to try to impress upon you today is that everybody has a role. And it's critical as you listen to what I say and then as we talk during the day that we, that you visualize and think where do you fit in terms of this process? What is your role and what is your responsibility in terms of making this a success? Because that is the only way that this process becomes successful as we move through first the planning and then the implementation. Vision being, that Milwaukee becomes a more healthy, vibrant, and safe community as we move forward. <clears throat> and clearly that, that, that's good for everybody. It's good for the communities in terms of their, the people who are in it and, and their ability to thrive and be healthy. It's good for the business sector in terms of the business climate. It, everybody wins. And part of what this is about is understanding these pieces, but also understanding that we know what to do. But really what 
The immediate task is, is generating the political, social, and economic will to make this happen. And a lot of you who are in this room <coughs> are sitting in positions to move that piece of this puzzle, to help generate and sustain, because that issue of sustainability is huge in terms of this, to generate and sustain <coughs> the political, social, and economic will to reduce violence in Milwaukee, created a, a more safe Milwaukee where people can thrive. So with that, I'm gonna <clears throat> move to that first half, which is, and forgive me, but I've had this three-week cold, and hopefully none of y'all get this. <laughs> but I got it. So quickly, in terms of the public health approach, what we're talking about is how to impact both behavior, environment, behavior, and subsequently the health and safety of individuals, families, and our whole community. And how do you transform those pieces? And that it's important to understand that the environment has a, a crucial role, as well as the issue of individual behavior. And we have a tendency to concentrate on individual attitudes and behavior, and that we have to move upstream to that environmental approach to incorporate that as a part of it. So what does that mean? <coughs> well, in Institute of Medicine, they said it very well. It is unreasonable to expect that people will change their behavior easily when so many forces in the social, cultural, and physical environment conspire against such a, <coughs> such a change. What that means is that you, it's not enough just to concentrate on one of these areas. We have to have strategies that engage change in the social, cultural, and physical environments as a way to actually promote change. And that's particularly the case in terms of issues around reducing violence and promoting public safety. <clears throat> so prevention, what do we mean by prevention? Prevention is a systematic process that reduces the, the frequency and the severity of an illness or injury, okay? And, and understanding violence within this framework is critical because what we're talking about is promote, primary prevention promotes healthy environments and behaviors to prevent problems from occurring before the onset of symptoms. So in the case of violence, what we're talking about is not just attending to the victims of violence after they've been injured and attending to the perpetrators of violence after they have <coughs> inflicted harm which is what we generally tend to do. That's our predominant approach to how we deal with violence, which places a huge and disproportionate amount of responsibility on the police and the criminal justice system. We need to shift that perspective and shift that responsibility. And part of the frame, part of the background for this in terms of public health approach to violence prevention is understanding that prevention does work. We've seen success in a variety of arenas and policy areas, including smoking prevention, your drinking, child immunization, uh, safety, child seat and safety belt laws, reduced levels of lead. All of these have come through a public health approach to violence, to, 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 to these problems. And using that as a framework and an approach to deal with violence is an effective way to understand it. 
Part of what that means is shifting the norms around violence. And we'll talk a bit more about that later. But the point of that is, is that the ideas of one generation become the instincts of the next. So shifting the norms not just shifts the way in which people think about it in, in the moment, but it shifts the way people interact, engage, and construct their lives moving forward into the future. So, in terms of urban violence, can we end the epidemic? And the, the answer that we have come to through our work across the country is a, a resounding yes. We know what we need to do. But part of it is, again, to move upstream and move beyond the individual level because no epidemic has ever been resolved by paying attention to the treatment of the affected individual. I'm going to say that again. No epidemic has ever been resolved by paying attention to the treatment of the affected individual. What does that mean? It means you can lock up as many people as you possibly can. And you are not going to solve the problem. And Law enforcement has come to the understanding of that across the country, that we cannot arrest our way out of this problem. And that we have to have public health approaches which focus on violence, focus on prevention, which is population-based, which reduce risks and increase resiliency within that framework. So what does that mean? It means that violence, understanding that violence is a leading cause of injury and disability and premature death. That violence is a significant disparity, uh, disproportionately affecting young people and people of color. And that violence increases the risk of other poor health outcomes. And so when we deal with violence and we reduce violence, we improve other health outcomes and other health processes for all of the people in the community. So the prevention continuum, which we talk about it in the Prevention Institute, in the, prevent, in, the, in the public health community, we talk about primary and tertiary and uh, secondary you know, approaches. And, and we went uh, to Philadelphia, and we were talking to a group of young, young people about primary, and secondary, and tertiary, and they were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so we started talking about, so well, what, what would you call it? We said, well, this sounds like, primary sounds like upfront. That means approaches that take place before violence has occurred to prevent initial perpetration and victimization. They said, well, secondary, which is, well, that sounds like that's in the thick of it. That's immediate responses after violence has occurred to, to deal with consequences in the short term. They said, yeah, and then that, you know, once it's happened, we come in and that's the aftermath. We deal with folk then, right? So that's long-term responses after violence to deal with the lasting consequences and treatment of in and interventions. So take a guess where most of our policies get concentrated, right? It's in the aftermath. Whereas if we think about the continuum, we can talk about and identify health and public health strategies in each of these areas, in the upfront, the interfic, and the aftermath, that are impactful and effective in terms of preventing violence and shifting the ways in which people interact and behave with each other. So upfront, we've got parenting skills, quality after school programs, youth leadership, conflict resolution, 
social connections in neighborhoods, economic development, restorative justice. I, there's a long list that we could have. In the thick, mentoring and family support services, violence interruption and street outreach, which we'll hear about later. And then in the aftermath, mental health services, successful reentry. These are in addition to what we spend most of our money on, which is criminal justice approaches, which are in the aftermath. <clears throat> if we think about that, the public health and combining with the criminal justice approach allows us to think about all three of these areas. Whereas if we concentrate predominantly on criminal justice, this is what it looks like in terms of how we deal with the problem. So that partnering public health with the criminal justice approaches provides us with a more comprehensive approach to trying to both interrupt as well as deal with as well as prevent violence, and that's what we're after. So there's three keys to preventing violence. These three keys are that violence is complex and requires a comprehensive approach. And we'll talk a bit about that complexity. Reggie referred to that uh, already. But part of that is to understand that risk and resilience factors must be addressed. And then preventing violence requires an integrated strategy for action. Again, I'm going to, as I'm moving through this, implore you to think about where do I fit in? Where does my organization, institution, what's my lane? What's my position? How do I play my position in this collective strategy? So, first key, violence is complex and requires a comprehensive approach. That means that we're looking at all of the different levels at which violence occurs and at which we can uh, utilize strategies to try to interrupt and then prevent violence at the individual level, at the relationship, relationship level, in families, in the community level, and in the broader society. In, the, in uh, the Prevention Institute, we have what's called a spectrum of prevention, which examines and addresses each of these areas with, a, with strategies and approaches to try to deal with them so that if we start at the bottom, you start with the individual level, strengthening individual knowledge and skills, and you have promoting community education, educating providers, fostering coalitions and networks, changing organizational practices, and influencing policy and legislation. Those, particularly those, those three on the top, that's part of what you all are here to think about what's your role in and think about how you're going to move those pieces of this process as we move forward in the coming months. Risk and resiliency factors must be addressed. So I want to ask the question real quick. What are some of the risk and resiliency factors for, for violence? Anybody? If you all don't know, we're in trouble. Anybody, what are some of the risk factors for violence? Poverty. Just poverty, that's all we got to deal with? Environment. We can handle this. What's that? Environment. Environment. Education. Education. Employment. Okay, so we have a sense of what those, those factors are. Some community and societal level factors, norms that support aggression towards, the, towards other societal inequities, and weak health, educational, and economic and social policies and laws, neighborhood poverty, poor neighborhood support and lack of cohesion, high alcohol, 
outlet density, which particularly gets concentrated in the most highly impacted neighborhoods, community deterioration, academic failure, residential segregation, incarceration and reentry, media violence, weapons. These are not a list that we came up with. These are lists that we could have developed in each and every community that we've worked with. And this is part a partial list. This is part of what you're going to do, what's going to happen as a part of the process for developing the plant here in Milwaukee. In terms of uh, the resilience factors, employment and economic opportunities, community connectedness, community design that supports safety, coordination of resources and services among community agencies, opportunities for artistic and cultural expression, and access to mental health and substance abuse services. Preventing violence requires an integrated strategy for action. So what that means is cities, and this is what we found across the country, is that cities with the greatest coordination across sectors had the lowest rates of youth violence. We've seen it across the nation. We've worked with 30 to 40 different cities across the country, including Boston, uh, Chicago, uh, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Oakland, Seattle, Minneapolis, and we've come to understand what works in terms of this type of coordination. First, certainly, is strong leadership within the mayor's office and the city, city, any city council. But also, the other sectors, public health sector being part of a central part, moving a collaboration along with criminal justice and the police, business sector has a core role and function in terms of how this moves forward and how much success we can expect through a process of violence, comprehensive violence prevention plan. In terms of the trends, these are part of what we've identified, comprehensive plans, balanced approaches that, that include prevention and intervention, neighborhood-based focus, multi-sector engagement and coordination along that. All of these, and then recognizing the links between multiple forms of violence and importance of trauma, which part of which uh, Reggie alluded to in his uh, initial remarks. And then the recognition of public health's role and contribution in the central, as a central moving force in any violence prevention plan. So I want to step back now and say a little bit about this issue of trauma. <coughs> Because in, the, in this area, and I've been doing this for about 20 years, we've evolved to understand what, how important trauma is as an impact of violence, but also as a driver for violence. And so as I've moved through the communities that I've worked in, you see and, and experience the aspects of trauma on a, on a daily basis. And they're evident to all of the residents in the community who are exposed to the, the shrines that go up, the funerals you have to go to, the young people who have to say goodbye to friends and family members at far too early an age. All of this we've come to, under, come to in some ways, normalize and have to deal with on a very normal, regular basis. And we've started to understand that the concept of P PTSD and the symptomatology of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, becomes one of the ones that we have to utilize in understanding how our young people behave 
and move through the world. And these are some of the, the symptoms. But we've had to change it where that P doesn't, call, that doesn't stand for post-traumatic stress disorder. It stands for persistent traumatic stress disorder because we're talking about folks not who have, have been in war and come home. We're talking about young people and families and adults who live on a daily basis with the possibility and potential of violence on the street and in the home. And what does that mean in terms of these symptoms? This, this, issue, this concept of synergistic trauma, which is a, a core part of this foundation for community trauma, and I want to direct you just to the, the, the last part of this, which is the combination of individual trauma from exposures to violence and the trauma of structural violence. <clears throat> what does this mean in terms of community trauma? Community trauma is not just the aggregate of individuals in a neighborhood who have experienced trauma from the exposures to violence, okay? Most of us would acknowledge that some of the communities here in Milwaukee are traumatized. And most of us would, what we would mean is that there's a whole lot of folk who have trauma in those communities. And that would be correct. But we're also saying that community trauma is the cumulative and synergistic impact of regular incidents of interpersonal violence, historical and intergenerational violence, and the continual exposure to structural violence. This concept of structural violence is critically important to how we develop a sustainable violence prevention plan. Why? Because what we're talking about in terms of structural violence is harm that individuals, families, and communities experience from the economic and social structure, social institutions and relations of power, privilege, and inequality and inequity that may harm people and communities by preventing them from meeting their basic needs. So part of that has to do with what is the economic and social fabric of our community and our city in terms of, what's that mean? Okay. Come <laughs> on, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. So that <laughs> what, what we've got here is the framework for a healthy community that we've developed in, uh, in the Prevention Institute, where you have three domains in, each, in all communities, in all cities. It's a structure of social, the social and cultural environment, the physical built environment, and the economic and educational opportunities, okay? In, in a healthy community, each of these areas and domains function as a fabric and foundation of resiliency for individuals, families, and the broader community. What does that mean? It means that it allows people, individuals, and communities to thrive in the face of structural violence and be able to be successful. But when you have community trauma, each of these domains not only have, don't, don't function in that way, but they actually serve to promote violence. I'm going to break this down, okay? So in terms of place, you have deteriorated 
environments and unhealthy, often dangerous public spaces with crumbling built environments. We've all seen it, right? This is a public housing project in San Francisco. Sure looks like a prison to me. You've got intergenerational poverty, long-term unemployment, real relocation of businesses, corporations, and jobs outside of these communities, limited employment opportunities, and government and private disinvestment. This is a playground in Brooklyn. Sure looks like, a, looks like a prison to me. In terms of the social cultural environment, you have damaged, fragmented, and disrupted social relations, social networks, and infrastructures of social support, low sense of collective political and social effort, efficacy, and elevation of, of destructive social norms promoting violence, unhealthy behaviors, and over-affirming community-oriented positive social norms. So you have narratives about communities that are constructed in the outside and internalized by members of that community, like this in East Oakland, where we call the 80s in East Oakland the killing fields. And folks in the community, that's how they think about it. And nobody wants to go in there, including businesses. So when you have all these community factors, which in healthy environments, in healthy communities, function as the fabric and foundation of resilience, what happens when they're traumatized? They help to promote violence. So part of the point is, it's not enough to just heal individuals who are traumatized, which we need to do. But we also need to heal communities that are traumatized so that we build a sustainable structure of resiliency and health that, young, that people can move beyond the situation where their neighborhoods are a prime part of what's killing them. Okay? So that means building a, a framework for resiliency that requires comprehensive and sustained policy and action. That's what we're talking about in terms of the development of the Comprehensive Violence Prevention Plan in safe Milwaukee. That means creating safer public spaces through improvements in the built environment by addressing parks, housing quality, and transportation, reclaiming and improving public spaces, that means developing equitable opportunities uh, and shifting and changing the way in which we do certain things, such as restorative justice as an alternative <coughs> to criminal justice for, for the ways in which we deal with issues around uh, uh, victimization and crime, both in the community but also in the school systems. Healing circles as an indigenous form of mental health uh, approaches. Economic empowerment and opportunity and workforce development strategies to increase community wealth and resources that can resist the economic pressures that result in dislocation and gentrification. Five minutes, that's what you mean, right? Um, this last piece is critical because as you are successful, and you are going to be successful here in Milwaukee, one of the things you have to be attentive to is this last piece. Because as you shift and change the nature of communities, folks want to move in. Yeah. Right? We've seen it. You know, in San Francisco, low-income, working-class folks, and you can read under that, people of color, can't afford to live there anymore. They're not living in East Bay. East Bay's now starting to price you out. We got, we're going to Antioch, we're going to Stockton, we're going to Fresno. That's what it's going to look like here in Milwaukee, unless you're attentive to this piece 
of the puzzle. And that issue of dislocation and gentrification becomes the next form of structural violence. So in terms of social cultural environment, rebuilding and revitalizing social relationships, particularly intergenerational relationships, social networks, infrastructure for social support, strengthening and, and elevating social norms, promoting healthy behaviors, community connection, and community orientation, and then establishing collaborations, promoting the community level strategies while rebuilding community level social networks. Now we have seen across the country examples of strategies that are effective in each of these domains. You have here in Milwaukee people who are doing this type of work already that just need to be linked and resourced to do this kind of work to help rebuild communities and heal communities. Changing the narrative about communities and people in it, shifting the social norms and organizing and promoting regular positive community activity, and this last one is critical. Provide a voice and element of power for community folks around shifting and changing environmental factors as well as the structural factors. So this is a, you know, a list of the things I've, I've, I've talked about already. <coughs> but it's not an exhaustive list. There are, you're going to develop your own and expand it and, and figure out, again, what is the role of each and every one of you and your institutions in this effort? Certainly, police and community relations is going to be a large part of what we're talking about moving forward. But it's also a question of what is the role of business sector and philanthropy in terms of this piece. And I know I've got about two minutes, right? <laughs> so what I'd like to do is just toss out a couple of, of, of thoughts on this, in this regard. And then we can have that conversation moving forward, but then it'll be framed by uh, the panels that I know that Reggie has uh, organized for you today. But as I'm looking at this piece, one of the critical pieces is, as I mentioned, the development of the political, social, and economic will, which the business sector and philanthropy have a core role in moving that piece, both in terms of the municipal situation, but also at the state level. And I'm not going to talk about the federal level. I'm just going to talk about the state level. Uh, so that that's part, one of the things to think about. How do you, how, what role do you play? But the second piece is to start thinking about what is the role of the business sector in that third domain of economic and educational opportunity. And thinking about it in a very uh, innovative form. Because there are, one way is to think as individual co companies, corporations, and businesses, what can you do in a community? Another is, what, as a sector, how do you impact this on a larger scale to make this happen? And I'm going to just toss one evolving movement <coughs> that's happening across the country that we're trying to figure out how to move it in the Bay Area that I would say you should start thinking about, and that's the concept of anchor institutions. How many folks know what an anchor institution is? Okay, Google it. In Cleveland and in Philadelphia, you have two examples of anchor institution models that provide an, a, a window of how the transformation of how businesses 
and institutions think about their relationship to community and their relationship to city and their responsibility can have a deep and profound impact on reducing violence. <clears throat> now, quickly, anchor institutions means when you take an institution that usually is a nonprofit or not-for-profit, but it can be a, a for-profit business that's rooted in a community that has a lot of resources that can be utilized to help generate community wealth in underserved communities. Now, one way is you can utilize the businesses you already have in that, the, 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 the uh, employment and jobs that you already have in your businesses to do that. Another way is to analyze the goods and services that you utilize and think about that as an asset to see community businesses, cooperatives, and I, I don't have much time to go into this as a model, but thinking innovatively about how the business and philanthropic sector engage this process of violence, preventing violence and promoting community wealth and health in the most underserved communities. I would venture to say that the sector that's represented in this room has the deepest potential to shift the balance of health equity and inequity in the city of Milwaukee and to have a profound impact on moving the needle on health disparities in, in, in Milwaukee and to help reducing the violence and raising the level of safety, security, and health for everybody in the city of Milwaukee. I'm going to stop there. Thank you.